0: Welcome to The Stockout. This is your show at FreightWaves for all things related to the CPG industry. Those are consumer packaged goods, a uh, big constituent among uh, transportation shippers. I'm your host, Mike Bowden. i on the head of Intermodal Solutions here. And uh, we set aside 26 minutes each week to go through uh, what's happening in the CPG industry and our data as that relates. To the CPG industry, and today, uh, what I'm going to be talking about is a little bit about uh, sugar and how the supply chain, you know, could change in the future uh, related to, uh, to to sugar inside of CPG. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of a recap of last week's show, which was dedicated to that topic. I would um, encourage you to go back and 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 view last week's show um, interview with Dumatuk, um, you know, head of North America, to get to, um, the full detail there. But I'll give a little bit of a recap. And then I'll talk about some other topics in CPG, one of which is the potential regulation on food dyes, which the FDA is currently soliciting uh, comments uh, for that. Have another month to get your comments in. If you want to see food dyes uh, retained or eliminated, uh, they're speci- specifically looking at that uh, red dye number three. So I'll talk about that. And then uh, the FTC investigating potentially illegal price discrimination in Beverages. The Robinson-Patman Act um, may be, um, you know, sort of alive and well. I'll talk about that specifically related to uh, alcoholic beverages, and then I'll go through a few of the sonar charts that uh, I think are applicable um, most heavily to CPG companies. So I'm going to do all that in the next uh, 24 minutes or so. But uh, before I do that, I just want to make sure if anyone um, is not signed up for the out newsletter. You can do that at www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout. So, all you have to do is just go to freightwaves.com, uh, go up to newsletters, and it's going to be the first one there uh, listed under supply chains in the middle of the screen and try to get a newsletter out every uh, Wednesday at uh, two o'clock uh, Eastern time. So, uh, you know, we tend to talk about just whatever is interesting in the world of uh, CPG and supply chains. And I think. Lately, there's been fewer uh, issues of um, stockouts not having enough uh, of certain ingredients. I think some of those uh, issues have uh, become a little bit alleviated uh, just with um, CPG volumes down just uh, just a tad. So uh, with that, um, give a little bit of a, a recap over la- of last week's interview. Last week, uh, the Stockout Show, dedicated to, to, to sugar, spoke with Kelly Thompson, who's the head of North America at Dumatuk, Dumatuk. It is an interesting company. It's one of the venture-backed uh, startups that is um, looking to help CPGs uh, rein in on the use of sugars. You sort of go back a couple decades and uh, fat and trans fat, whereas uh, sort of the ingredient uh, non-grata that everyone was trying to get out of uh, products. And uh, basically, the solution to that was a lot of companies used a uh, sugar as a filler material as kind of a bulking agent. Uh, to make products um that that same you know sort of size, consistency, uh, and you know, but be, be able to show that they don't have any trans fats or any any fat in, in, in general. And that really um sort of gave rise to the products having way too much sugar. You know, the pounds of sugar that are consumed by um you know consumers is is you know is is risen you know rather dramatically and then this company um you know has, has a product called uh Incredo Sugar that 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 Dumatook has and it they had they add crystals which is going to make a product have 30% to 50% less sugar uh, than the original formulas. They're a believer that consumers are not going to be willing to compromise on taste, that its taste has to be at full uh, parity. Saw an article over the weekend in uh, Beverage Daily that suggested the same thing, actually suggested that if a company is going to roll out, let's say, a soft drink, that is low sugar. That really, what they should not do is focus in on how much more healthy it is versus the traditional formula. Um, instead, just focus on how how good it tastes, um, you know, et cetera, uh, how exciting it is. Uh, that gives you energy and, and and sort of leave the the sugar just something that the consumers can can discover on their own. So, um, getting back to to, to Dumatuk, um, you know, got a little bit of an update on just how the, how the tech works. I still have a little bit of a hard time wrapping my head around the tech, but essentially sugar in its current form doesn't allow all the flavors to come out. So this company's product is more amorphous, um, is going to make it you know, able to bind more efficiently with sweet taste receptors. So um, you, do, you get just as much sugar taste with, with, with less sugar. Um, and part of the, the issue with the bulking agent, um, using sugar as a bulking agent, which I just described, is it takes away uh, space that could be used for other things. And so with less sugar... Um, the startups are aiming to, uh, you know, be able to use some of that space in, inside the ingredient list for other, uh, you know, sort of healthier ingredients, uh, you know, fibers and or whole grains instead of instead of sugars. One of the things that ca- that came out of it, I asked, um, you know, Kelly Thompson directly, sort of how uh, much more expensive do you imagine uh, a product that uses incredible sugar would be relative to the original formulas? And she said 10 to 15 percent more expensive, which. Doesn't sound crazy to me. I think there's plenty of um you know sort of healthy products out there that are even at a higher premium than that relative to their traditional uh, formulas. And consumers have uh demonstrated a willingness to pay, you know, that type of premium in the marketplace or or a premium even greater than that. Really, the um you know, biggest growth areas in CPG have been the premiumization of of products. So if you have the, the higher cost. Uh, sort of uh, better alternative. And then, you know, healthier products, which consumers are willing to pay a, a premium for, usually those products, you know, there's quite a lot of overlap. The healthier products are also uh, more expensive. So it does seem like something that, uh, you know, consumers would be uh, receptive to, uh, you know, their sort of takeaway from that interview is uh, the product is is more, you know, concentrated. And so there's less uh, free transportation is needed for a given amount of, um, of of ingredient right now. They said their uh, logistics are actually pretty straightforward because they have these partnerships with uh, sh- large sugar refiners like this company Lantic, which is Canada's largest sugar refiner. They basically kind of piggyback on their distribution network. Um, you know, those companies seem to want to get into some of these uh, sugar reduction alternatives as maybe a hedge and, um, you know, the company can take advantage of having the, the those companies having the transportation network already in place. Uh, Kelly Thompson at, at Dumatook also talked about how the company um, is, is going to maybe potentially leverage its uh, expertise in sugar reduction to also find ways to reduce other harmful ingredients. They say that on the site also, which is just an interesting way uh, that the company describes itself. They don't describe themselves as a company that reduces sugar; they, they describe themselves as a company that reduces harmful ingredients or maybe the overuse of, of certain ingredients. And um, you know, my guess. Would be that they're going to look at uh, reducing salt because that seems to be the other big trend in uh, CPG is maybe finding a way to reduce to reduce salt um, while also keeping the um, the taste uh, same. So I think it's definitely a company to uh, look out for in addition to some of the other um, sugar reduction, um, you know, venture capital based backed um, you know startups which hope to tr- get some of those on the show as as well. I think that would be really interesting also. I'll move on to the, I'll move on to the next topic, which is the FDA is considering banning red number, di- number three uh, food dye. and just sort of over the weekend, you know I went through a lot of uh, you know articles about um, you know, CPG industry. This is one that I thought think stood out as as being interesting and it's um you know kind of fewer maybe stockouts and logistical challenges we've seen in the CPG industry. but um you know, this is something that potentially you know some companies that are big CPG companies will have to. Uh, you know, change their formulas if uh, these consumer advocacy groups gain any traction uh, with their demands to remove, um, you know, this red dye number three. And so, essentially, you know, the consumer advocacy groups have been looking at food dyes uh, for a long time. Have been big proponents of, of eliminating uh, dyes from from certain foods, and they seem to have zeroed in on this red dye number three. And um, you know, the reason for that is that. You know, this one has been banned by um, the FDA for um, use in uh, ph- pharmaceutical or not not pharmaceuticals but um, you know cosmetics things that there's a topical application for so you know you, for instance, you couldn't use uh, red dye number three to make a lipstick more red. Um, you know that would be illegal but it's still used in uh, you know certain you know candies, you know food type products to make the colors, uh, more vibrant consumer advocacy groups say, well, if it's um, you know not allowed for cosmetics, why should it be allowed for food? They say that there's plenty of evidence to suggest that there's a connection between this red dye and thyroid cancer that was shown in animals in the 70s and 80s that caused the FDA to ban the product on cosmetics in 1990. It had already been used in food products, um, you know, supposedly safely, and so it almost seemed like those food products um, were grandfathered in um, kind of interestingly in Europe it can be only used for certain cherries so it's it's limited in its use uh, there so this can you know some of the consumer groups have been calling for artificial you know bad artificial colors for, for for years they say some of these synthetic food dyes um, can be linked to, to problems in children's behavior people sort of mistake mistakenly think it's it's sugar that's the issue and it's really all of these dyes that are used to make, the candies uh, and other uh, food products, candies and cereals, you have more vibrant colors. And another thing that I found interesting on this topic is that a lot of the CPGs, um, you know, a few years ago, said that they were going to eliminate uh, these uh, use of dyes and artificial colors and just use natural colors. And they backed off of that plan because they then said consumers didn't want the natural colors. Uh, perhaps they saw some data that suggested that the uh, the duller colors with the natural ingredients were not selling as well and uh, went back to using the artificial colors. So it's another, you know, issue like, you know, we've seen in a lot of issues in CPG, you kind of have industry groups versus of uh, government regulators that want to make these products uh, more healthy. So that's another sort of health-related issue to um, you know, keep an eye on. I'll try to keep you updated in uh, the stock out. Let's move on to the third topic here, which is the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, is investigating a uh, certain beverage distributor over price discrimination saw this over the weekend over on Politico, um, something uh, that should uh, impact uh, CPGs that are involved in selling uh, beverages. I would say um, those in selling alcoholic beverages or um, uh, either even um, you know soft drinks should be interested in. So the FTC opened this investigation into the practice of the largest U.S. alcohol distributor, Southern Glazer uh, Wine and Spirits, a uh, you know, very large company company. Um, that uh of their practices, how they uh, price wine and liquor to uh, retail stores. So they sell them to retail stores and um, they're seeking a wide range of information from various alcohol distributors. There's something similar was uh, announced um, you know, earlier in the year back in January uh, for Coke and Pepsi looking into their practices and um, they're looking at possible violations of the Robinson-Patman Act. So the Robinson-Patman Act 1936 law prohibiting suppliers from offering better prices to large retailers at the expense of smaller competitors. And so it's designed to make it so a mom and pop retail store, local grocery store, can compete with the biggest uh, players. And, um, you know, if you talk to people in the industry, they say that this law, to a large extent, is not um, followed. It's not enforced. I really haven't heard much from this law in the past uh, 20 years. A year, some of the recent cases, um, you know, so-called recent cases. McCormick in 2000 was uh, settled, so 23 years ago there was a settlement, and then before that, 1988 uh, against book publishers. So we're talking about over 30 years. And we've had two cases, and so this, but this newest FTC um, commissioner may, plans to reinvigorate the Robinson-Patman uh, Act as a priority for his first tenure. The idea is to enhance you know, competition between. Large retailers and small retailers. Some of the, um, you know, counter argument is that if you actually enforce it more, it won't make the prices any cheaper at the local retailer uh, level. It'll just make the prices higher for the big national chains, and that ends up hurting, um, you know, retailers. But I, th- I think you know if they dug into this, they certainly could find you know violations. Um, one thing that's that's interesting there is my colleague uh, Donnie Gilbert. You're probably familiar with from Great Waves Now. Every morning, he owns a liquor store, and uh, he says it's it's pretty rampant this sort of illegal price discrimination. But at least where he is in uh, Tennessee, his, his stores in Tennessee, uh, he gets calls from uh, you know, agencies, you know, just saying, you know, I just want to verify that you're paying um, you know x amount, number of dollars for this for this case, and because that's what they're allowed to to sell it to you for. They're now not allowed to charge you more because you're a a small um, you know, independent uh, seller. So there they have been. Sort of checking up on that uh, based on uh, you know that anecdote, um, but but thought that was was was, was interesting. But um, you know, Donnie still says that there are certain uh, products where he just can't um, you know buy it for the price that a big uh, company can can sell it for. So um, it's still um, you know degree of uh, economies of scale for for large retailers. So it's definitely something that I think CPG companies are going to want to keep in mind is to make sure that they are up to date on all of these things given the greater um, enforcement uh, potentially by the FTC on this uh, Robinson-Patman Act, which we haven't heard from in a long time. So um, with that as um, a heads up there, I want to move into the uh, Sonar uh, market update. have just three charts that I think stand out uh, within Sonar. So I want to bring up this first one there. The white line is ban contract rates. Line haul, so we're excluding fuel surcharges, and then the orange line there is the uh, the spot rate, and we have a um, you know calculation in there to remove the impact of uh, fuel um, you know fuels usually included in a spot uh, rate, but you know we're we're using it to 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 remove it in order to compare on a, an apples to apples basis, and what that shows is that throughout um, the second half of 2020 and through all of 2021 spot rates were higher than uh, contract rates. That changed in about March of last year, and uh, uh, spot rates dropped uh, more significantly than than the contract rates. They've stayed uh, below contract rates since then, and that spread is wide. It's still about 70 cents per mile difference between spot and contract rates. So that tells you a couple of things. It tells you that the small trucking companies Struggling because those small trucking companies are much more heavily participate in the spot market. The contract uh, carriers, you know, participate much more heavily in that that contracted market. Most of the big, uh, you know, CPGs would, um, you know, participate in the in the contract market, you know, primarily. And uh, so that 252 on that white line is really going to be more applicable to them. Uh, but um, sort of the orange line and sort of the spread between the two gives a little bit of an indicator of where those contract rates are headed. And so it tells you that contract rates are headed downward. Uh, That being said, they've been significantly below, spot rates have been significantly below contract rates for some time, and those contract rates have not fallen as significantly as maybe you would have expected. So I think um, really the primary reason for that is the the big shippers, they seem to be more concerned right now with having um, being able to, to secure capacity, having supply chains that are working, uh, you know, properly that are functioning after having gone through this period of, you know, many many, um, you know, disruptions, uh, and, and that seems to be the, the priority versus uh, paying just a little bit less for uh, freight transportation. You think of a big CPG company, at, and, and you think of their cost of goods sold. About nine percent of that is transportation cost. So they're they're and they're not trying to ring out every. Um, you know, every 100 basis points of transportation costs—it's not really the, the the needle mover that. Let's say having those products on the sh- the shelf is so they've been maybe a little bit more conservative than they absolutely needed to be, and that's why those contract rates have stayed above the the, the spot rates. Uh, you know, pretty significantly there. That said, they're still coming down. Some of the anecdotes we heard in the last week from you know CPG, uh, one big uh, national um, you know, multinational CPG told us that on their their U.S. lanes. They were, um, you know, looking at uh, taking sort of 2019 rates as a benchmark. Now, 2019 was a weak uh, year for 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 the freight markets, pricing them, you know, plus or minus where things were in 2019, and the bids were coming coming back, and, and they were getting what they were asking for uh, there. Um, so th- there's still a lot of pressure on, on contract rates, um, but I, I still think um, you know shippers are being maybe a little bit conservative there. Some uh, things that that stand out: those contract rates, excluding fuel. Down fourteen percent year over year spot rates with um, that fuel removed that orange line down twenty nine percent you know year over year so um, you know contract rates still above uh, you know spot rates I think those 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 lines are going to narrow a, a bit uh, you know going forward um, I'll, I'll move on to the next uh, chart here which is intermodal uh, contract rates and sort of bringing these up this is a seasonality chart if you're not familiar with our charts each of those lines across represents a year. Uh, 2023 is the white line, uh, and uh, 2022 is the green. 2021 is the, the orange, and 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 so forth. And um, coming out of the pandemic, uh, intermodal started to be tight uh, in the middle part of 2020, and sort of from two consecutive years, you saw intermodal uh, domestic intermodal contract rates rise at double digit rate from 2020 into 2021, and then again from 2021 into 2022. Now into 2023 going back the other way, as you can see on that white line, and um, really took another step down in the past uh, week. If I were to show that um, same chart a week ago, the rates would have been down about about 8% year over year, the most recent data point um, for, let's say, the uh, early early March. This is not a two-week uh, lag, so getting into the middle part of, of March, those are now down more like 18% uh, year over year. This, this um, chart also excludes uh, fuel surcharges, just takes a look at the line haul rates. And so intermodal contracts, those do take a little bit of longer time to adjust versus the the, the dry van rates. You know, A minute ago, I talked about um, dry van contract rates being down 14%. Um, and, and those had been down um, sort of steadily throughout last year. Intermodal, more of that uh, business is on an annual contract. Whereas truckloads are a little bit more likely to be on a, a quarterly uh, you know, period to, to get renegotiated. So a lot of those intermodal contracts have to be uh, renegotiated in the first half of the, the year. Most of them roll over, let's say, by you know, right about now. Um, and that's why you're seeing that white line drop as, as, as much as it is. That's um, just a larger portion of those contracts have been repriced now versus where they were a, a, a month ago. And that's why you're seeing that uh, come come down. Uh, what's also interesting is when you um, you know, compare the intermodal uh, contract rates to dry van contract rates and you include fuel surcharges for both intermodal and dry van, which is something you have to do because fuel is a large part of the intermodal uh, savings if a shipper is looking at both modes. Intermodal is 10.3% below dry van in one of our data series uh, because um, we are, are just limiting that data series to the same five-digit origin-destination pairs um, that were processed on transactions that were processed the same week, so eliminating a lot of those um, other variables that might take um, you know into account, um, you know, part some of the part price difference, like if there's longer drays, or, or or so, or sort of eliminating all of those, seeing about a ten percent difference. Usually, um, you know, in our data set, it's anywhere from sort of ten to twenty percent, fifteen percent being sort of the average there. So it, it does suggest that we've had drive-in contracts adjust at least closer to the market, Intermodal still has a ways to go in terms of declining um, and, and getting price closer to the market. Would expect that to take place over the next couple of months, uh, primarily because most of those contracts renew in the first half of the year. I want to bring up the final uh, sonar chart here that I have, which is the Inbound Ocean TU Volume Index. And that is in white. And what's uh, unique about that data series is that we're, um, you know, putting that data in based on the point where loads are booked at um, area of origin for U.S imports so that's most often you know China but could also be uh, you know Vietnam uh, you know, elsewhere in Southeast Asia or really really anywhere um, for U.S uh, you know imports we really saw that fall off uh, starting in about May of last year and have stayed fairly depressed. They are off of their lows in February. If you do look at at January, uh, is up about let's call it twenty percent from the very February uh, from from February, February lows, but not a, not a perfect comparison. February you have the Chinese New Year, which uh, it always depresses uh, freight, but um, this is still down forty four percent versus where it was a, a year ago. So really, imports one of the main reasons why um, there is weakness in. Uh, Domestic transportation um, industry, particularly from some of the port cities like uh, Los Angeles, which you know really those um, you know market in in that area has been weak for some time. That translates into you know intermodal volume as as well. Um, You know when I look at intermodal volume and all of the dense lanes, the lanes where there's the most acute weakness have been some of the densest intermodal lanes, which would be include. LA to Chicago, LA to Dallas, LA to Atlanta. Those are all down well into the double digits, uh, you know, year over year, both for international intermodal volume and also domestic intermodal volume, which um, would include um, a freight that is imported, um, you know, taking freight that's in forty-foot um, inter- international containers and um, moving them into fifty-three-foot uh, domestic containers. That's something that. On the site, we've called the West Coast uh, wipeout. Um, there was a good article that Greg Miller uh, published um, on March 17th on St. Patrick's Day, where um, he talked about LA imports uh, down 41 percent year over year and 33 percent month over month, and actually, kind of amazingly, down 28 percent, um, you know, before COVID levels. Um, and then that's interesting because so many of the other sort of freight metrics that we see. Sort of trending, um, kind of close to in line with uh, pre-COVID levels. Kind of looking back at, at at 2018 or 2019, which of course was a weak year for the freight transportation market. Um, sort of, I associate 2019 with a lot of uh, carrier bankruptcies. Um, the the Celadon bankruptcy at the end of the year was really kind of a, a end of an era and kind of the, maybe the biggest news story that um, we had at, at FreightWaves.com. Um, all the stuff that that went along with there. And then, uh, you know, Greg Miller in another article, um, you know, referenced uh, a trend that I thought was interesting, which is that the pricing has been quite a lot weaker on trans-Pacific imports, let's say China to the U.S. versus the trans-Atlantic, let's say Europe to the U.S. And the difference there has been that that trans-Pacific lane so um, consumer-heavy, and inventories are still high at a lot of those level at a lot of those um, you know retailers, at least for certain categories in the trans-Atlantic more related to industrial activity um you know construction and 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 the, and those things so um, you know those have held up better It may only uh, be a temporary um, situation there could be um, capacity that's redeployed but at least for for the time being yeah you know, that was uh, very um, you know interesting uh, so that's really what I want to go over today uh, if anyone uh, wants to reach out to me you can do that anytime at um at freightwaves.com. sign up for the newsletter and then I'll be in your inbox every uh, Wednesday and hope everyone has a great day.